the day we live in today, if we look at it at the surface level, many people would say everything's going well. Some people would say, no, you're not. It's not that great. And so we take a time trip back centuries, in fact, eight centuries before the calendar switches from B.C. to A.D., to a man named Amos from a village called Tekoa who heard a word from the Lord and began to speak. And for the next several weeks, we will share together from this message from Amos. And I think as we study together, you will see parallels between our day and his day that are easy to identify and extremely applicable. And so as we study together, I've titled this God's Roar for Righteousness and for Judgment. And the question you probably have right after how in the world do I find Amos is why in the world would I want to study Amos? That's in the part of my Bible that is usually white and pristine because I don't turn there very often. Well, first of all, like all of Scripture, Amos has a message that speaks beyond the world and the time that he lived in. And we could agree that society has changed very little. Sin is still sin. Society has been corrupt from the beginning. And contrary to the belief of some, it's not getting any better. God's people were still struggling in that day. They struggle now between the balance between what religion and relationship are. And Amos in that time called God's people back to a true relationship with God where that relationship would reflect would be reflected in their relationships with others. And as we study it, I believe it will change our perspective and also offer us assurances and, and hope for the future. Now, what would the theme of this book be? The theme of Amos is really the universal justice of God. The idea that God is over all nations. He's righteous and just. He will judge all men, both the just and the unjust. His requirement of justice means protection of the innocent, means mercy for the poor. That religious observations, attendance, offerings, rituals are, are not substitutes for doing good and, and showing mercy. Near the center of the book, Amos 5 verse 24, the theme verse of the entire book, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And this morning as we begin our, our study together, we have a simple outline to kind of set the stage for the weeks to come. We'll look at the man, we'll look at the setting, and we'll look at the message. But what can we know about the man, Amos? Well, we don't have to guess. We don't have a lot of information, but we can look at verse 1, and it says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So from that we can draw that this book contains the words of a man called Amos, 
We don't know much about him outside of the book that he wrote, but we can tell what his occupation was, where his hometown was located, and what his calling entailed. It's just a brief biographical sketch. If you remember the days of, of sports trading cards, it's like flipping over the back of a, of a trading card and you get the name, the birth date, the birthplace, and a few statistics about your favorite player, but you don't get a lot of detailed information. Or if you're a book person, it's like flipping open the inside cover and there on the side leaf, reading just a small portion about the author. But the information may be brief, but it's incredibly important. It tells us his occupation. What did he do for a living? Well, in a word, he was a a rancher, a farmer. He was an all-around agricultural man. We learn from that verse that he was a shepherd, because it says he was among the shepherds in Tekoa, but it wasn't really the common word for shepherd. It meant one that was an overseer of shepherds or someone that owned flocks. So... While he probably wasn't wealthy, he at least had some dealings that were above the normal hireling. He was a herdsman or or a rancher. We find that in chapter 7, verse 14, where he not only had sheep, but he had larger animals, larger livestock, probably oxen or cows. And then we find he's a dresser of sycamore figs. So he was a farmer. These sycamore figs were trees that were, were cultivated to provide food for the the poor as well as a source of income. We don't really know a lot about what it means that he was a fruit dresser. Some people say that they went around pollinating the fruit so it would produce more. Some believe they, they punctured it or mashed it to cause it to ripen quicker or maybe to be sweeter to relieve some of the bitterness. But in that, we could say that Amos would be a guy that would fit in in, in Johnson County and the area around. You know, we probably grew up in 4-H He graduated into high school and got a blue corduroy jacket from the FFA. He probably liked to watch RFD TV in the afternoons if they had it. And he could likely quote the daily livestock and grain prices. He knew his surroundings. He knew the land. He knew animals. He was was a country boy. And where was he from? His hometown, a place called Tekoa in Judea. It's in the southern kingdom, the southern part of modern day Israel. Tekoa is both the name of a village and a territory. The village was about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. The territory stretched from 20 miles east of Tekoa to the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. So it was a land that was diverse in elevation. It went from about 2,700 feet above sea level to the shore of the Dead Sea, which was about 1,300 feet below sea level. One historian described it as a a waste and howling wilderness. West Texas. Um, It was this rugged area. It was was also called in modern times the Judean wilderness. It's the same general area where where John the Baptist wandered around eating locusts and, and honey. It's the area near where Jesus was tempted. It was marked by rocky terrain and scrubby trees. So imagine this West Texas farmer rancher who wasn't a professional he had a real job and then all of a sudden he receives this calling it's why we read verse 14 earlier then amos answered and said to amaziah i was not a prophet nor a prophet's son but i was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs so he says you know i was not a professional minister a full-time prophet 
I'm just a layman like everybody else. But then verse 15, but the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the words of the Lord. So God calls this man, this rancher farmer from the southern kingdom of Judah to the northern kingdom of Egypt, of Israel, and says, go and be my prophet. In chapter 3, verse 8, we'll get to it in a few weeks. He says, the Lord has spoken who can but prophesy. So God called him. God put his words into him. And because he knew the surroundings and he knew he had a message from God, he couldn't do anything but speak. Now, it's a reminder to me that God still takes people from places where they are and he puts them into places where he wants them to be. That phrase, but the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people, Israel. If you had time, you could probably sit down and list a bunch of people that God took from one place to another, starting with Abraham. You know, get up from the place we live, from the land and go to the land. I will show you all through the Bible people that God called and he still calls men and women from one location to another for his purposes, for his kingdom. So where was Amos? He was in Judah doing his job. Where did he go? To Israel to prophesy. And so God still uses everyday people to do extraordinary things for his glory. And that's just a bit about the man, Amos. What can we say about the setting? That's the second thing. We have a time reference that we can look at. Verse 1 helps us. In the days of the king... Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. While we know little about the specifics of the earthquake, we do know that Uzziah reigned over Judah from 783 to 742 B.C., and that Jeroboam II was king of Israel from 786 to 746 B.C. And so most biblical scholars date the ministry of Amos somewhere between 760 to 750 B.C. The international scene at the time was, for that period, stable. There was not a lot going on. Israel had often been oppressed and was greatly affected by the surrounding world. There were threats from the outside. And we knew that God used those foreign nations to judge his people. And Amos was a man that was aware of the world around him. He knew what was going on. Much like many of us, we see what's going on as Americans around the world. And we notice that that affects the way things happen here. Probably the thing that you'll most note is the barometer for the world climate is the gasoline pump. You know, you can almost guarantee it that if gas prices shoot up, there's something going on in the world. There's a natural disaster, there's a war, somebody's fighting against somebody, or there's been a a great amount of destruction. We also know that when things around the world aren't great, we have travel advisories. And so Amos was very keenly aware of the world around him. And he had seen world powers rise and fall. And he saw the fortunes of Israel and Judah rise and fall along. The empires of the Egyptians. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Assyrians who had risen up once but now were, were quieted but not for long. This king Jeroboam, the second son of 
Jeroboam I, was a man who enjoyed great military success. He expanded the borders of the kingdom almost to the original borders that David and Solomon enjoyed. He recaptured that lost territory. And because there was a lack of a, of a world power, there wasn't a nation to overpower them, they enjoyed for the most part a long time of peace. But it was really just a lull before the storm. Because this peace, this prosperity they were enjoying would only be temporary and the Assyrians would one day rise again to power. So that's the world scene. What about, you know, daily life in Israel and Judah? Well, the first thing is it was marked by economic prosperity. The northern kingdom had a booming economy. There were these great trade routes that were open, were free from harassment because of the extended peace. There were land and property were being grabbed up and larger and larger estates were being amassed. There was really no middle class. There was an upper class that was the merchants and the landowners. They controlled the wealth. They were busy building their homes and their summer homes. And they harassed and victimized the poor to achieve their means. The average person of the day would just be a simple farmer or a shepherd. They would live in a small town or a village. They would have a one-room hut or a very simple house with an open courtyard, straw or mud roof, and they seldom had furniture. And in that day, furniture was a luxury for the wealthy. What was their problem? The problem that was looming wasn't a political problem. It was a spiritual problem. You see, what they had was religion without relationship. To the average person, everything seemed perfect, stable. There was peace. There was prosperity. They were in the splendid days of King Jeroboam. People were looking back and thinking, this is another golden age, just like when David was, was king, when Solomon was here. And they may have been singing, you know, happy days are here again. But just underneath the surface of things, there was rottenness, there was decay. They were headed for judgment. And these were the things that Amos wrote about, which he saw concerning Israel. What was the real problem? Well, they were very religious, but their religion was just superficial. They were going through the motions. They, they followed the rules, but their hearts weren't in it. And we could say that rules without relationship is religion. And religion may look good on the outside, but it does very little to change the inside. It was superficial. It was a thin layer that looked good, but wasn't. They had allowed the pagan practices and symbols to enter into their worship, both Canaanite and Baal worship. Jeroboam I had established those shrines at, at Dan and Bethel and they were still in use. They were carrying out the, the rules that were prescribed in the law of Moses, but it was just surface level obedience. But you could look at the church records and you could see attendance was good. Sacrifices and offerings were abundant. But all the while, the people were just going through the motions. The religion that they claimed failed to make a difference in their day-to-day -day life, an injustice in humanity, moral decline, a basic concern for self and an unconcern for others ruled the land. 
one scholar said they had a religion that was not very religious. That was very religious. Tradition was adored. Crowds gathered for worship. Offerings and sacrifices abounded. But there was a lack of divine revelation. And they were practicing a me-centered religion. Which helps, which reminds us that, you know, self-centered religion hasn't gone away. It's still around. It's that attitude where we say, well, what's in this for, for me? What's going to meet my needs? What's going to fit my tastes? And what's going to allow me to be comfortable? And well, if I'm not comfortable, if something, you know, hurts my feelings or offends me or I don't agree with, I'll just go somewhere else and I'll find someone else that will, will make me feel the way that I need to feel. And so in Amos Day and in our days, we must remember that it's, it's God-first, God-centered, God-focused worship, religion, forever. It's for God's glory, it's in the name of Christ, and it's in the fellowship of the Spirit. Because if we practice self-centered religion, it leads to a self-centered living, which leads to a neglect of our moral responsibilities which manifests itself in those days as an increasing amount of influence that was based on the exploitation of the poor and the vulnerable. That they were climbing higher and higher in affluence, but the steps they were using to climb were the backs of the poor. Because not everyone enjoyed this prosperity. While the rich were getting richer, the poor were getting getting poorer through judicial trickery, through Land theft, this have and have not society was growing. And these people enjoyed luxurious living conditions and extravagant lifestyles. They lived in these rich stone houses with paneled walls, ivory inlaid furniture. Remember earlier I said the poor didn't even have furniture. Well, they had wood furniture and it was so extravagant that it was inlaid with ivory and it had silk cushions. So you have dirt floor people to find furniture people. And really nothing in between. And all the while they're looking at this prosperity and they're seeing it as a sign of God's blessing. I've got all this stuff. I've got all this wealth because it's God's blessing. And their concern was only for how they could acquire more and more. More land, more money, and they didn't care who got in their way. And because of this injustice and dishonesty was rampant. You see, the wealthy didn't gain their position through hard work. They gained it through oppression and injustice. They gobbled up smaller parcels of land from people that were struggling. The widow, the orphan, the outsider, the sojourner had little chance to receive any any justice. The courts were rigged in a way that they would favor those that had money and would be against those who didn't. And this moral decline didn't stop there. There was this self-indulgent, immoral attitude where the people not only enjoyed their wealth and accumulated more, but they enjoyed feasting and partying while the poor suffered. In chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it says, Those who trample the head of the poor in the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, A man and his father go into the same girl so that his holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. 
And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So at the expense of the poor, they were living extravagant, immoral lives. See, God's people were enjoying all of the benefits, all the privileges, and the prosperity of being what they would proudly say, being God's people. They were comfortable in their homes, they were pleased with their religious activity, but all the while they were spiritually asleep and they were unaware that anything could be gone, could be wrong. We're God's people, they would proudly say. They would rest on the promises to Abraham. They'd celebrate the deliverance out of Egypt. They wanted privilege without responsibility. And they looked forward to a day when God would defeat all their enemies and would honor and exalt them. But what they failed to recognize was this unique relationship with God came with an inescapable responsibility. Oh, they were God's chosen people. And God would indeed preserve a remnant of that people for all time. But this place of favored status would not allow them to escape God's judgment. And in fact, the opposite was true. Because of their nearness, their closeness to God, they would be under greater scrutiny, closer examination, and would be held to a greater level of responsibility because of who they were. Reminded me of a verse we looked at a couple of weeks ago in First Peter chapter 4. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? As we'll see next week and in the next few weeks, Amos is about to announce judgment on all the nations surrounding Judah and Israel. And you could probably imagine that the people were getting excited That they were saying, yes, God, get them. Yes, God, get them. And then after God circles around the nation, he focuses in on Israel and Judah and says, and we're starting with you. Chapter 3, verse 2, we'll get here in a a week or two. You only have, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God knew them intimately. He chose them. They wouldn't escape his judgment because they had the law. They knew what they were supposed to do. And because they knew what was to be expected, they would be held to a higher level of accountability. I used to hate it growing up when my mom would say this. You probably did too. I can understand why he did it. But you knew better, didn't you? You remember that? Did you ever have your mom say that? You knew better, didn't you? And I said, yes, yes, yes. It's exactly what he's saying to the people of Israel. I can understand why pagans are pagans, but you knew better. Words of Jesus, Luke chapter 12, to whom much was given, of whom much will be required. Israel was comfortable. They were complacent. They were increasingly corrupt. And as one man said, they were a world that needed to be shaken. And the shaking was coming. God was about to speak and Amos was his messenger. So what's the message? Chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of of Carmel withers. 
Now we know God spoke from time to time throughout history through these men called prophets. Amos himself knew that God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. These men that were spokespersons for God, that spoke God's word, not their own. Second Peter one twenty one. no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So who spoke? The Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, the self-revealing holy God, the one who chose Israel as his very own people. The one true God, the Almighty, was speaking. But it wasn't in a still, small voice. It was in a roar, like a lion about to leap on its prey. When the lion would roar, the attack was certain. The fate had already been decided. And the roar came out to bring fear and to paralyze the prey. And when a stalking lion would roar at night, the prey would just stop dead in their tracks. And the roar of God's judgment was about to be heard in the land. Where did it come from? It came from Zion, from Jerusalem. The place of the temple, the place where God's presence resided, the place where both wrath and mercy meet. Have you thought about that? That in that temple where sacrifices were offered day after day after day to cover the sin, it was a place where God's wrath and God's mercy met together. There was a place where atonement was, was made and forgiveness was granted. And from this holy mountain from this temple the Lord roared a roar of holy judgment as one man points out the words will contain the tone and ferocity and tone of ferocity and terrifying strength and as any will know who have heard lions roaring in the quiet hours of the night the divine words will send a tingle of fear down the spines of those who hear him the first two chapters, chapters 1 and 2, describe this judgment. And it was a judgment that would be heard all over the land. It's the rest of the verse. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. He switches his metaphor there from the roar of a lion to the coming of a wind or a storm that would bring desolation God's judgment would be felt from the pasture to the mountaintop. No one, no area, no place would be unprotected. The whole land would be affected. The fertile flock, fertile fields where the flocks grazed to the very top of Mount Carmel. That great mountain in the north where we know Elijah had his great showdown with the prophets of Baal. A place that was rich. And fertile, there were trees and vegetations because of its close proximity to the ocean and the changes in the temperature. It enjoyed almost a nightly bathing of dew that would bring moisture to the land. And so olive trees and bushes abounded. And so the thought would be if even the most fertile mountain in the highest place in Jerusalem withers, then the devastation will be complete. Reminds us of this truth the whole earth is under God's authority. He sees everything. He'll judge everything and that nothing escapes him. 
and as a result, all men must give an account for their actions. So in these two verses that we've looked at, it it sets the stage for what's to come. And next week we'll begin looking at God's judgment of the surrounding nations and ultimately Judah and Israel. I encourage you, if you have opportunity in the next week, to read through the entire book. It's short. You can do it in one sitting and usually probably 10 or 15 minutes. And then read and focus primarily on chapters 1 and 2 for our study in the next week. But let me just say a few things to conclude before we're finished this morning. These verses, even though they paint a picture of impending judgment and destruction, speak loudly of the truth that God still speaks and His Word still matters. God still speaks. He speaks through the truth of His Word. He speaks by His power, His wor- the power of His Spirit. And His Word still matters. It's relevant today just like it was in the day that it was written. That's why it's what we need daily for our spiritual nourishment. It's what we need to be the plumb line of our life. The guidebook that we follow is God's Word. We need to be enjoying it. We need to be studying it. We need to allow it to, to study us and to change us and to transform us on a daily basis. But it's also a reminder that God calls ordinary people living ordinary lives for His extraordinary purposes. We could make a list, probably a mile long, of men and women that God called from unlikely situations to use for great purposes. You could think of the, the ministry of, of Billy Graham, the call of missionaries like Amy Carmichael. That God calls ordinary people living in ordinary places, carrying out ordinary lives for extraordinary purposes, and He still does it today. That's why we have flags over here representing missionaries that God has called to, to places around the world, some places very hard. It's the reason that God still calls men to ministry and to preach. And He calls ladies to to stand up and be involved in ministry. It's because He is in the business of using ordinary people for extraordinary purposes. Jars of clay, imperfect and cracked, so that the excellency of His power can shine through them. And then the last thing for this morning. God is calling Christians and the church to wake up and pay attention. In 1988, Pastor Alistair Begg, speaking about the modern world and the modern church in this day, said that the church today is has religious hucksters and immoral prophets and preachers you can see it today people that peddle God's word for their own gain the increase of scandal and immoral activity among priest and prophet pastor 
rebellious church across our land that's enamored with tales of experience and derides the truth of biblical doctrine, that's bought into psychology and bowed out of theology, that's reduced biblical obligations to personal options, and is preoccupied with growth and lost sight of the God who makes things grow. A church that's strong on politics and weak on prayer, and a church that if things don't change could be on its last leg. I think more than anything the book of Amos speaks to the contemporary church of our day because it's time for us to wake up and pay attention that what we believe, what we say we believe matters and it should matter and if it doesn't matter we should be seriously alarmed that if what you read in your Bible doesn't change your heart If what you see happening in our society doesn't grieve your soul, then you need to wake up and pay attention. It's about that personal relationship with Jesus. It's learning that it's one thing to claim God's promises. But it's another thing to actually inherit them. The echo of God's roar can still be heard today. It's a timeless word. It's living, it's active, it's personal, it's practical. It's razor sharp and it's relevant. God still calls men and women to follow Him and serve Him for His glory. And God calls out to those who have fallen asleep, whether it be in pride, in privilege, or in prosperity. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. May God wake us, shake us, raise us up, and shine on us for his glory, both here and in the churches of our land for his glory. May we pray. Father, we are grateful for your goodness, for your mercy, for your love. We thank you for your ability to speak to each of us individually, different situations different circumstances, different personalities, all at the same time. God, we're amazed at your ability to watch over the whole world at the same time and not miss anything. God, that you could care for each one of us individually, personally. God, help us to see this morning the way that we live matters. That it's so much more and singing a couple of songs, sitting in a Sunday school class, reading a verse of the day, posting it on Facebook and thinking we're all good. But the things we believe should affect the way that we live. God, we want to know you. We want to have a relationship with you. And we're asking you to free us from the rule following that we so easily fall into. To deliver us from check mark Christianity. And to help us to delight in your presence. To fellowship with you through your word and in prayer. To depend on the power of your spirit and to walk in holiness and fullness of life because we have been redeemed. That we are blood-bought 
children of a great and mighty God and we have a powerful, all-sufficient Savior. God, help us to live like it. Help us to speak like it. Help us to proclaim the truth of the glory of freedom in the name of Jesus like we mean it because we've been changed and transformed. God, help us in these weeks as we study this book of Amos. God, help us to be mindful of our responsibility. Help us to be aware of your presence and the empowering that you give us to achieve the things you've called us to do. And help us to know the love that you have for us, the grace that you extend toward us, and that we would live the lives that you've called us to live for your namesake and for your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.